You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. Maybe we would have hung on to that job a little bit longer if we knew how bad this new job was going to be that we just took. Maybe we wouldn't have eaten all of that holiday food if we knew the way it was going to make us feel or the way it was going to make us look. Right? We could pile up all sorts of regrets, or we could simply say, well, hindsight is 2020. I often think about people in the Bible in this way. It's easy to say, well, if if I was in the garden, I never would have eaten that fruit. Right? It's easy to say that if I was around when Noah was building the ark, I would have picked up a hammer. I at least would have jumped on board before they closed it up. Right, the list goes on. I wouldn't have worshipped the golden calf. I would have believed the prophets. I certainly wouldn't have been yelling out, crucify him. But the reality is, hindsight is twenty twenty. And if I know anything about sin nature, and if I know anything about myself, I probably would have been doing exactly the same thing as everybody else. And what's really remarkable is when we see people responding in right ways without the benefit of hindsight. And perhaps equally remarkable is when we do have the benefit of hindsight and we still make the wrong decisions. Well, today we're starting this new series through the book of Mark. And in some ways, the book of Mark gives us the benefit of hindsight Unlike the Israelites of the Old Testament who were told to believe that there was a coming Messiah, we have the privilege of hindsight. We get to look at the life of that Messiah. Unlike the disciples who were called to follow him before the miracles began, we get to read all about the miracles, all about the the glory of his death and resurrection, and then choose to follow him. But what is remarkable is how often we still refuse to. And so in this series, in this book, we're going to encounter the greatest news of all time, the good news that Jesus, the promised Messiah, the hope of the world has come, and in him we can have salvation. And that changes everything. Jesus changes everything, which is why the the title for this series through Mark is just that. It's This Changes Everything. Because truly, when we see who Jesus is, and we see what he has done, and when we consider what he has called us to do, it changes everything, or at least it should. And we're going to see that pretty clearly in our passage this morning. We're going to meet four guys who seem to just be meeting Jesus that day. And Jesus is going to call them to follow him. And they have no idea what they're getting into. Hindsight is 2020, but they don't have the privilege of hindsight when this call is made on their lives. But in many ways, we do. And so as we prepare to start a, a new year, I want us to consider who Jesus is and how we will respond to his call in our life. And so let's make our way to Mark chapter one. If you have your 
Bibles with you. We're going to read verses 14 to 28. Um, If you picked up one of these Bibles on your way in, you'll find it on page 927. And, And just a reminder that these Bibles are here for you. They're our gift to you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, please take one of those with you. We'll replenish it next week. Okay, let me read for us Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14. It says this, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And and going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. What's incredible to me about this passage is that Simon and Andrew and James and John said yes to following Jesus before verse 27. But by the time we get to verses 27 and 28, it seems like a, a pretty good idea. People are amazed and Jesus is famous. But earlier in the passage, we might not be too sure. But we aren't here to consider whether or not these four made a good decision. We actually are faced with the same decision ourselves. But unlike them, we have the privilege of hindsight. In our passage, we are given the perspective of really just a couple of days, but even with that limited look into the life and ministry of Jesus, we should be able to see more clearly. And so we're actually going to start at the end of our passage this morning and then work our way back up to the top. We want to consider first, who is Jesus? And then what is he calling us to? Who is Jesus? Well, we we could just ask this demon here. He tells you that Jesus is the Holy One of God. But let's actually look at the evidence of this Sabbath day. The first thing that we see is that Jesus has all authority. And, And his authority is, it's amazing to people. Actually, elsewhere in the book of Mark, it's terrifying to people. Jesus has a profound authority. 
It says in verse 22 that when they heard it, they were astonished. In verse 27, they were amazed. They were astonished, not because they had never heard anything like this before, but actually because they had. This was a spiritually educated people. They were religious students. They had heard all sorts of of sermons and teachings before. They were familiar with the, the teachings of their scribes, but this was different. Jesus was different. And the big difference was that Jesus had authority. The scribes knew the word. They spent their lives studying and and writing and teaching the word. But Jesus didn't just know the word. He is the word. John 1 tells us that Jesus, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And so here in this synagogue on that Sabbath day, the people were encountering the glory of God. The word made flesh, and they were amazed. They were astonished. And and Jesus still has authority today. In fact, at the very end of Matthew's gospel, he tells his people, the last thing he tells them there, is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, which in case you're wondering, that's all the authority that there is. It's all been given to him. That's why Paul in, in Ephesians says that he, Jesus, is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He has authority. All authority is his. And, and in this moment, these people are getting their very first taste of who Jesus is. And not only has all authority, but he has all power. Or, or the way Rodney Cooper puts it, Jesus's authoritative teaching is backed up by his authoritative action. He's authoritative in both word and deed. He not only teaches with authority, but he clearly has dominion over the powers of darkness as well. He's all powerful. You see what happens here? A man with an unclean spirit, or we might say a demon-possessed man comes in. The power of darkness has shown up on the scene. You can be sure that when Jesus shows up somewhere, the powers of darkness also show up. They're trying to overcome him. But as we've heard in the last couple of weeks, actually, as we looked last week, John tells at the very beginning of John that Jesus is the light. And when the light shines in the darkness, the darkness cannot overcome it. Jesus is the light and he drives out darkness. And so he commands the spirit to come out of the man and the spirit obeys because Jesus has all authority and he has all power. He's set apart by his teaching, but also by his, by his miracles. And so he starts by saying the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come near, right? That's what he says all the way up in verse 14. The kingdom that the, that the Israelite people have been waiting for for centuries has come. Jesus is the hope of Israel. He's the Messiah King, the the Savior of the world. And I can say all of that, and I can tell you that all of that is true. But the reason that I say all of that is because hindsight is 2020. And I'm looking back 
on all of these stories about who Jesus is and what he has done. And I'm looking back on all of the stories about how that kingdom has come to bear in all of this history. You read through the the book of Acts and you see this Jesus, this king, his kingdom growing out from Israel. But for these people, especially for these four guys in verses 16 and to 20, Jesus has only started to reveal himself. And yet the call on their lives is the same as the call on our life. Repent, believe, and follow me. You see those first two in verse 15, that the first words of Jesus in the gospel of Mark, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, let me be clear. A lot of people think that when we talk about repenting and believing in the gospel, or even when we talk about following Jesus, we mean this sort of like one-time thing that you're supposed to do sometime in the past in order to, you know, be saved. And, and there's a sense in which that is right. It's true, right? When we, when we become a Christian, we are in fact saying that we are repenting of our sin and we're believing in Jesus for salvation. And, and I will say, listen, if you've never done that, if you've never repented and believed in Jesus, there is no greater, no better decision that you can make. And, and if you want to talk more about, I would love to talk more with you about what it looks like to repent and believe in Jesus, even today. So as soon as the service is over, just come find me. We'll have a conversation about it. But there's this other side that I want us to explore this morning. And that is that while repentance and faith and following may be initiated in a moment, they're lived out over a lifetime. As the the great reformer Martin Luther famously said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that our entire life be one of repentance. And not just repentance, right? But faith and following as well. It's why one of our core values here says that we are ever learning the gospel. We need to know it more and more and more. It's why our mission statement starts with us taking the gospel to heart. That is letting it root itself deeper and deeper into who we are, ever learning and applying and believing the gospel. And so if you're here and you're saying like, well, yeah, like I did that whole repent and believe thing a long time ago, right? Or or I, I grew up in the church. I know all about following I would just encourage you to let those words and to let this passage hit you in a fresh way today. Jesus has all authority and all power, and he's calling you, he's calling us to repent and to believe and to follow him. Now, I know that none of us really like being told to repent. I mean, some of you may be offended that I even brought it up. Right? We like to point out how the legalists, they stole that word. The legalists have been using that word repent to sort of harass people through guilt and inadequacy for, for decades. But, but when I say the word repent, I don't want you to feel guilty. I don't mean to make you feel inadequate. Rather, I want to point you to a person who has taken your guilt for you. 
and, and a savior who is perfectly adequate. And he's saying, come to me, repent. But the, the problem that many of us face when, with understanding repentance in our modern world is actually that our view of sin is quite shallow. Right? When someone talks about sin, most of us, my, myself included, we're always ready with an excuse as to why it really wasn't our fault or really wasn't all that bad. Right? If I can position myself into the place of the victim, then when you call me a sinner, you're victim blaming. You shouldn't do that. When commentator David Garland says, we're too much like Aaron, who tried to duck any responsibility in the incident with the golden calf. When Moses asked him, why did you do that? What does he do? He doesn't confess at all. Instead, he comes up with this lame excuse. He says this, he says, they brought me their gold and I tossed it in the fire and out came this idol. What was I supposed to do about it? It's the furnace's fault, not mine. He completely passes over the fact that he's the one who told them to bring their gold and he collected it all up and then he fashioned this idol with a graving tool. He watched over it while it was in the furnace. He set it up on a pedestal and he told everyone that today was a feast day and so the people should gather together and worship. Right? And even, even if we were to admit that we sin, we seldom think of sin the way the Bible does. Right, the Bible talks about sin as rebellion against God. It uses the analogy of committing adultery. And, and we see sin as like a little oopsie, right? It's just an oopsie. The Bible says it's violence against God. But if it's just an oopsie, well, I should be able to just say like, oh, my bad. And God will say, oh, no big deal. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. But the reality is our sin is a big deal. And, and to repent is to, by God's grace, to repent is to declare war against it. But if our view of sin is shallow, then our view of repentance will be shallow as well. And so many of us have seen far too many times, we do this ourselves, we've seen other people do it, that we just repent over and over and over again, but it doesn't mean anything. It's just a ritual that we go through. To quote Garland again, he says, many people have washed, deodorized, and perfumed their spiritual lives through a variety of religious rituals and believe that they've done their duty before God while countless unconfessed sins lurk within. And we may have just become cynical of the whole thing because we've seen ourselves and others go through the act and not change at all. You, you may not remember this, but it reminds me of this moment in um, Mark Twain writes this about um, Huckleberry Finn's alcoholic father. So again, you may not remember it, but this is what he says. The old drunk cried and cried when Judge Thatcher talked to him about temperance and such things, said he'd been a fool and was a going to turn over a new leaf. And everyone hugged him and, and cried and said that it was the holiest time on record. And that night, he got drunker than he'd ever been before. And many of us, that's our experience with repentance. We've seen it in our own lives. We've seen it in other people's lives. It seems like the holiest day on record. 
But that night, we just went back to doing the same thing that we had always done. Repentance is an act of war against sin and Satan. It is a dividing decision where we leave behind our previous way of living and we allow God to come alive and live in us, which which is why repentance is accompanied by believing, right? Because in repentance, we're saying that all of those things that I used to trust, I will trust no longer. And so now I will trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so he says, repent and believe in the gospel. That is to say, believe the good news that the kingdom of God is really the best kingdom. And so notice what he says. He says, believe in the gospel. This isn't just some agreement with a a list of of facts. This is a life-changing trust that we're called to. Which isn't to say that there aren't certain content that we must believe but that believing in brings that historic truth into the present day of my life. So Romans 10 lays out what the content is. It says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? In, In other words, believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is Lord, and believe that he did what he said he would do, that he died and that he rose again. But this believing in brings it into the present. It's not just that he's Lord, but that I will submit my life to him. It's not just that he died and and rose again, but that he lives and he reigns today and that he's conquered every enemy in this world. And so I can trust him fully and completely. I I can share the gospel with my unbelieving friend or I can give sacrificially to love others. Or, or I can say no to sin that brings me an incredible amount of pleasure. I can do those things because I trust. I trust in Jesus. And he told me that he will strengthen me and he will provide for me and he will give me true and lasting joy. It's believing the good news that following Jesus is really the best option, even when he calls me to do radical and scary things. The way um, Professor Danny Aiken puts it is this, we are commanded to live in a state of repentance and trust. It's called not a momentary, one-time decision. It has lasting effect. It is a life-altering change, a radical transformation of our life orientation. A king has come. And he has rightly demanded that we follow and obey him. And that is the unchanging, uncompromising message and vision of the eternal kingdom of God. Repent, believe, and follow. Jesus has all authority. He's all powerful. So repent, believe, and follow him. So Mark gives this example of these four guys that Jesus calls to follow him. And in one sense, their response to his calling is an example of repenting and believing. But there's more to it than just that. 
they set out on this lifelong adventure of following Jesus. They didn't just become believers, they became disciples. And it cost them. It cost them a lot. So look back at our passage here, starting in verse 16, it says this. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they followed him. When Jesus called, they left everything behind. And I don't think that we can just assume that like fishing was going badly for them. Like James and John, like they're, they have employees. Things are going pretty good in the family business. But at the call of Christ, they left it all. They left their jobs and their family and their money and they followed Jesus. And that's the call of Christ. He wants all of you. He wants everything that you have and everything that you are. The call of Jesus is a call to leave everything behind and to love him above all, to serve him above all earthly masters. He tells us to love him more than our family, more than our possessions, more than your job, more than anything in this world. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But look at what, Look at what happens. Look what his promise is. He says, if you'll do that, if you'll follow me, then I will shape and fashion you into the person you were created to be. You see what he says there? He says, I will make you become fishers of men. He says that if we, if we follow him, he will begin to go to work in our lives to, to shape us and to, and to make us become what he's created us to be. I mean, just think about the adventure that these guys go on. Before the week was up, they've already become part of the most famous entourage in the whole country. And over the next few years, their lives would be extraordinary as Jesus would shape and fashion them as they followed after him. Now, they didn't have the privilege of hindsight to see all that Jesus would do. It's why when he went to the cross, they all ran away because they didn't have the privilege of hindsight to know that three days later, he was going to rise again. But we have it. We have the whole story. We, we know that this all-powerful, authoritative king humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And we know that three days later, he rose again with, with victory over death and sin. And we know that he gives to all who would repent and believe in him, not only forgiveness, forgiveness of their sins, but he also gives them the Holy Spirit indwelling in them to empower them, to empower us to live like him. The two things that amaze me the most is how with, without ever seeing and knowing all of that, these guys, these four guys gave up everything to follow Jesus. And secondly, I'm amazed how we can look at all of that, all that we know, 
and still choose not to. He has all authority and all power, and he wants you to follow him. And so as we, as we end out the year, and everybody's talking about fresh starts, many of us perhaps need to consider a fresh start with, with Jesus. It's an opportunity to, to walk away again from the idols in your life, from any other allegiances, and to come and to follow him. Follow him into becoming all that he has created you to be. The question is not whether or not Jesus has all authority. It's whether or not we will submit to his authority. And when we do, it changes everything. And so I pray that you will, and that 2024 will be a year of faithfully following him and being shaped and fashioned into the people he'd have us to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you you are all powerful. You have all authority. Every, Every tongue one day will confess that you are king. But Lord, we pray that we would confess you as Lord even today, not wait for that one day, but that even today in light of who you are, that we would give ourselves fully over to you. We pray, Lord, that as you day by day shape and fashion us, that we would be faithful to stay with you, to stick with you, when you ask us to do hard things, when you ask us to make radical change, because we know that you will care for us each and every day and the victory is yours in full. So help us, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.